Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to be back. It's been, been a month, and um, well, I'm Peter Milliken, if you've never met me before or if you've forgotten me from a month ago, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I've been uh, over in the States uh, for three of those weeks, and then I was meant to return last Sunday, but uh, COVID got me again for the second time. I'll just tell you, the second time's a lot better than the first. Um, and uh, so we've been over in the States, uh, married to Karen. She is from America. And so uh, we decided we wanted to get over there this year before we have a little baby that's coming in September. And so before third trimester, we jumped at the opportunity to get over there and spend some time with family and friends. And so we did that for three weeks and came back just over a week ago. And uh, I got COVID on the way home somehow. And uh, so we missed last week. And unfortunately, uh, I passed that on to Karen this week, um, as a loving husband does. And uh, she looked at me uh, a couple of days ago and said, why did you give me COVID? And I said, because in my vows, I promised that what is mine is yours. And it was only right for me to pass that on to her. And so she's away this morning. She is uh, desperately sad about that and wants to for me to pass on uh, greetings and hello, and that she wished she could be here to see uh, our church family, but she can't. And uh, so she's at home, resting, uh, but thankfully, uh, since I got it first, I'm here. Um, But it's been an interesting week preparing, I'll just put it that way, combining jet lag with tiredness and COVID. Um, After a holiday, it was hard to get the engine sort of started and, and going, but Um, I hope this morning as we open God's Word that it'll minister to you as it has to me. I've been been in the the book of John, we've been in the book of John, been preparing in uh, John and I I just, uh, I want to say that it has, um, there is a depth to John that um, it takes time to really soak in and understand And, and I've been blessed this week just preparing and so I pray as, as we go through it you'll be blessed as well. John is one of those books that um, it was the last gospel written. And so it's written quite a bit after Matthew, Mark and Luke. And you've got John, this apostle who walked with Jesus. And um, he's had years of thinking about his time with Christ and his experiences with Christ and understanding more about the gospel and who Jesus is. And he writes this gospel and it's completely different um, point of view from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not that it's um, it's it's not true. It's 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 another angle of the gospel that we don't get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it's got depth. It's it is weighty. Um, and so we're going to spend some time in there this morning. I, I, and and I think it's just it's just going to be a blessing. So before we jump in, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, and what I was like growing up, I loved uh, playing sport. That was the thing that I lived for. That's the thing that I wanted to do. I played pretty much every sport that was available to me as a kid. I played soccer. I played tennis. I played cricket. I played rugby union. I was a runner. I went to state for 800 meters. I did long jump. I did high jump. I did cross country. I even tried jiu-jitsu. And so I just loved sports, right? Every sport I was in. Whenever I wasn't playing sport, I was watching sport on TV. 
And uh, I remember growing up, I mean, golf was probably the most boring sport to watch on TV. Is anyone with me on that? Golf, like, it's just so boring to watch, right? But I would sit there and I would watch golf if that was the only thing, only sport that was on TV. I just loved sport, right? And so what happened was, as I went through all these competitive sports, is I became a competitive person, right? And so you need to know that about me, that I'm very competitive, and uh, if we ever play a board game or if we ever play cards, you just need to know, I want to beat you. Like, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to do everything I can to beat you, even if it's just a stupid card game or a board game that doesn't matter. To me, it matters, okay? And, and I'm just a competitive person. And I wish that wasn't in me at times, right? Because it hasn't gone well at times for me. But it is in me. And part of that was because I grew up playing sports. And the, the, the goal of sports, I know some of you think it is to have fun. It's not. It's to win, <laughs> right? And, and the, the best part about sport is, is winning. And that's actually how you have fun, is you win. Um, and if, if uh, you're not having fun, it's because you're a loser. <laughs> and... Uh, and so that's just part of who I am, you know? Um, and the reason I tell you that is because often our stories and the way that we grew up um, and the things that happened to us when we were younger help us understand who we are now, right? And those things make a difference as we become adults. And so there's some, some of the things that you need to know about your pastors here on staff um, help you understand who they are now. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Tom. Um, Tom actually came out of the womb a fully grown adult. And he's only actually five years old. He came out looking pretty much like that. And so when we go and get coffee, he orders a hot chocolate because he's just a small child still. Okay, so those are things that you need to understand about Tom. Pete Sondergeld, when he was a child, he actually got dropped on his head a couple of times. And that's why he supports New South Wales. Okay, so these are things that you understand. Like, as a kid, these things happened. Now it all makes sense as an adult. Um, I was going to have a go at Graham, but I'll let you off the hook. Because I bet you Tom, I know he preached last week, and he probably talked about how old you were. And so I'll just, I'll leave you alone, Graham. But this is just how it works. We understand more about who we are now if we can understand more about what happened when we were kids, when we were teenagers, when we were young adult. It impacts and helps us understand who we are now. And that's the same in the Christian life. Many of us, <clears throat> we believed in Jesus. We have trusted in Christ for the salvation of our sins. Right? We understand the gospel and we have accepted that, and we know that. But as you go through the Christian life, there is more to the gospel to understand. It's, it's like there is a, a depth and a, a layer that as you grow in your Christian walk, you understand more of the gospel, and it helps you understand more of the life that you now live and the life that we are called to live as Christians. Because once you understand it, you can then begin to live it out. And when we first hear the gospel, generally we have a very basic understanding 
of the gospel. And it's right and it's true and it's good. And, and it goes something like, you're a sinner. God sent Jesus and he, he died on a cross for the salvation of your sins. And if you believe in him, he'll, he'll forgive you and your sins can be forgiven and you'll have eternal life. That, that's sort of the, the basic understanding of the gospel. And you heard something like that at some stage in your life or along those lines and you believed it and accepted it, right? But the gospel also has a lot more to it than that. And there's a depth to it that as you grow in your Christian life, the more you can understand it, the more you understand about who you are, how you have been created, what the gospel does and how it impacts your life. And so as we look at John, that's exactly what we're going to do. My hope today is that as you understand more of the gospel through John, that it will impact how you can live out your life for Jesus and in relationship with God. So we're going to look at John 8. And we're only going to look at one verse. John 8 and verse 12. And in here, you're going to see two things. You're going to see a statement and you're going to see a promise. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and uh, verse 12, and um, this is what it says. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. Now, I don't understand this. I know we're only t- I'm only teaching one verse, but to really understand this, we need to really grasp some more verses, some more areas of Scripture that unpack and help us know what this actually means. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the light of the world? Let's just start with the context of what's going on here in, in chapter 8 and what has taken place before chapter 8, uh, that is chapter 7. And in this section, um, it is uh, Tom, Tom preached about the woman caught in adultery, Okay, so that was the first part of chapter 8. Back in chapter 7, Jesus has stood in front of the people at the Feast of Tabernacles and he said, if anyone thirsts, come to me. And uh, I will give you uh, something to drink. And um, what you need to know is that this section has a little interlude with the woman caught in adultery. And Tom talked a little bit about what that section, um, you know, how that section came to be. Um, And then we jump straight back into kind of where we left off in chapter 7. And so we're still in the Feast of the Tabernacles. And uh, that feast was a really important feast for the people of Israel. And it took place to remember the wandering that happened while they were in the desert. After they had been rescued from Egypt, they wandered the desert for 40 years and God took care of them and he provided for them. And as they were wandering, one of the ways that he did this was he gave them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and they would follow it around the desert. And they knew if they followed the cloud and the fire, that was where they were supposed to go. And so this is in Exodus 21, where we read about this and uh, how God guided them. So if you just want to flip over there, it's the second book in the Old Testament, 
Exodus 20, uh, sorry, 13, 21. This is what it says. <clears throat> and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so we recognize that that was one of the ways that God led his people while they're in the wilderness. And so when they did this Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things that they did to remember this is they'd have these giant lampstands that they would set up in the temple area. And uh, there is a photo of the temple that'll come up on the screen. And uh, what you're seeing here is um, the outside section. Um, sorry, let's start with the big pillars around the... You can see them at the back, right? It's, that's a huge area on the Temple Mount, and that's called the Court of the Gentiles. So anyone can go into that section. Then you've got this, this rectangular section inside of that, um, and the, the, the square that is closest to us is called the Court of the Women. And so any Jew could go into that section. And then as you move towards that tall building in the middle, that is the holy place. And the tall building inside that is the holy of holies, right? Um, and so this is the, the setup. And when the Feast of the Tabernacles would take place, they would place these giant lampstands in the court of the women, right? So that first section of uh, the, the inner, inner part of the temple there. And everyone could be there. All the Jews were there. And these were giant lampstands. I'm talking like 20 feet tall. And when you look at the Holy of Holies, you don't realize how tall that is. That's close to 50 meters tall. And it was made primarily of marble. I mean, this was this grand structure on top of the Temple Mount. And there was these giant lampstands. And uh, it was a way that they would remember... Um, that Christ, uh, that God led them through the wilderness by fire. And it was a representation of that. And uh, this is what D.A. Carson says about this, this tabernacle, this feast of tabernacles and what would happen with the giant lampstands and what the people would do. This is what he says, Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles, with the light from the temple area shedding its glow over Jerusalem. What you need to know about the temple area of Jerusalem is it's the highest point of Jerusalem. So it sits at the, the top, and as you look up to it, uh, you, you can see the temple and everything kind of moves down from that. And so when that is lit up, it kind of casts light across all of Jerusalem. And so you can imagine all the Jews are all up on the Temple Mount and there is light everywhere and people are holding torches and flames are burning as they remember God and his goodness and his provision in the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's in this space that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In verse 20, if you just jump back to chapter 8, verse 20, it tells you exactly where he is when he's saying this. Right? Chapter 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury. 
If you, uh, if you go to the next uh, picture, here's an outline of the temple that I was talking about. You can see the women's courtyard there. Um, and if you were to go um, left or right where those two uh, the, the, the pillars would be, the treasury was on either side of the uh, women's courtyard. So Jesus is standing either to the left side of the courtyard or the right side of the courtyard in there. So he's right in the midst of it. And there's flames. And, and we don't know if he did this during the day when there wasn't fire, but the, all, the, all the candles were there, or as the flames are burning, or maybe it's at the end of the night as they're extinguishing all the flame and, and light. I don't know. We don't know that. But at some stage during that time, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Now, there's another backdrop to this, and that is in the Old Testament of Isaiah. And in chapter 42 of Isaiah, we read uh, some prophetic material about the Messiah and what the Messiah will do. The Messiah was this one who would come from Israel who was going to rescue Israel from the slavery that they were under, again, from a foreign nation. And not just that, they were going to, he was going to restore Israel and forgive their sins. And in chapter 42... You, uh, we're going to read just a little bit about what this Messiah will do. I want you to see if you can see the connection here. I'm sure you can. It doesn't, uh, it's not hard to see. This is what it says in chapter 42 of Isaiah and verse 6. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's what the Messiah was going to do. He, he was going to make Israel a light for the nations. He was going to open the eyes of the blind. He was going to help those who are in a prison of darkness escape. Just over the page, seven, seven chapters later, again, Isaiah says this in verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Messiah is described as a light for the nations. The purpose for that light, that salvation may reach the end of the earth. Salvation for those who sit in darkness. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he is making a claim that he is Messiah. The Messiah that Isaiah prophesied that Israel had been waiting for. And the Jews listening, right? Remember, this is packed with Jews. The Jews that were there who would listen to this, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. It's this perfect scene of the, the temple court and the Feast of Tabernacles and the candles and the torches and all the Jews and celebrating God's presence and provision. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So that's the statement that Jesus makes. Then he makes a promise. Whoever follows me, this is back in chapter 8, 12 again, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Let's just take the first half of that promise. It's interesting here that Jesus says, follows. Whoever follows me. See, because if you know anything about John, and as we've been working through it, the, the key word that gets used over and over is the word believe. The, the purpose statement of the book is found in chapter 20, verse 31, where it says, but these things, this is why John writes the book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And yet, John doesn't use the word believe here. He uses follow. What you need to know about the word believe in the book of John is that it is always found as a verb and never a noun. See, to John, believing is not a concept. It's a trust. 94 times it shows up in the book. 94. Never as a noun. Always as a verb. It's an active, ongoing trust that works its way out in your life. So why does Jesus say follow? I think it's because of the context of what's going on in front of him right there as they remember the literal flame of God and their time in the wilderness. And you can read this if you want to jot this down, if you've taken notes or anything, of Numbers 9.15. Basically what that says is, where the cloud went, the people followed. And where the fire went, the people followed. And if the, if the cloud stopped, they stopped. And it was a very active, ongoing, relational commitment. They literally followed the cloud and the fire everywhere around in the desert. Where God went, they followed. Where God stopped, they stopped. See, we've come to this understanding that believing is merely an intellectual activity. That as long as you think that is true, then you believe. That's not what John has in mind when he says believe. Believing has legs. It works its way out in your life. So when Jesus says follow, it's actually synonymous with believe in the book of John. The word for follow in the Greek, it's akalutheo. It means to be with or go after. And there's uses of this in contemporary Greek writings that are written at the same time as the New Testament and it's frequently used um, with the activity of soldiers and of slaves. It's used of the stars in the heavens as they make their daily appearance. See, following may just be the most helpful way for us to better understand what it means to believe. And Jesus promises that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now, that's not even a strong enough translation for what we have in the Greek. He, he uses the double negative in the Greek. Now, a double negative in English would actually turn it into a positive. right? But that's not how it works in Greek. 
In Greek, if you want to strongly deny something that will ever happen, you use two negatives. It's like doubling down on something. And so we often translate these double negatives in our English as never to try and get that sense of the word across. And so when Jesus says you will not walk in darkness, it really should be you'll never walk in darkness. The next question is, what is the darkness? This again takes a little bit of unpacking, but stick with me. And what I want to start with is what it isn't. And this is often what we assume it to be, but it's actually not. And it's really important that we understand what it isn't. And what it isn't is it's not just sin on its own. Often we just think darkness means sin. That is not what it is. It's way bigger than that. And what happens is when we interpret it as just sin, we end up playing this kind of, um, uh, this interpretation where I do the right thing, um, good things happen. If I do the wrong things and I sin, um, God is angry with me and bad things happen. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Although that may uh, be true in your life, or you know, sin is never going to be good for us, it's never going to work out well, um, darkness is not just sin. Let me tell you what it is and then unpack how John tells us this. Sin, oh, sorry, darkness is the state of death of one who is separated from God due to rejecting the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me show you how we get this. And it's important when you try to understand a concept in the Bible that you don't just necessarily look at that verse that it shows up in. One of the ways that you can understand some of the uh, words and concepts in a book is you look at how does the author use this, not just in this verse, but in verses around it, within the book that he's writing, within any other materials that he has written. And so we know that uh, this uh, gospel is written by John, right? This is the Apostle John, the one that walked with Christ. And so as we look at understanding what darkness is, we need to look further than just this verse alone to truly understand how does he use this verse? What does it mean? Then we can also go to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, these letters that John wrote, where again, he is using very similar, similar vocabulary. If you read 1st John, and I encourage you to do this this week, it is full. I mean, it's just jam-packed with light and darkness, light and darkness. It's everywhere across that. Okay, so... This is a really important way that we study the scriptures is to, to know what terms mean. And so stick with me as we kind of look at how John uses this so we can understand what Christ is promising. And to, to better understand this, we need to start with um, what, is, what does the world mean? What does John mean when he talks about the world? What does the Bible say about the world? Now, when the Bible says the world, it, it normally means and most often means the first creation, the material things inside of it and the people. 
And because of man's rejection of God, the Bible describes the world a few different ways. This is what it says about it. It says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When we rejected God, there was, there was a part of the world and, and it became all of the world that actually embraced the evil one and is now under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19. You can see the scriptures. I won't, I, won't, uh, I won't read them. The world is passing away. Satan is the prince of this world. The world is the enemy of God, James says that, and the world is entrenched in sin. The world has no hope. The world has no life. The world is contrary to God. The world is a slave to sin. The world is passing away. The world is experiencing death every single day. The world is separated from God. That's how the Bible describes the world. And the way that John summarizes the state of the world, he summarizes it in one word, and that one word is darkness. That is how he tries to get across the state and understanding of the world that is separated from God. Darkness. That's what darkness is. And so John understands this and he wants you to understand that the only hope for a dying world is a new creation, a recreation. And so when you open the book of John, the first chapter, right? let's just go to chapter 1, it says this, in the beginning. Just stop there. Is that sending any triggers off, any sort of throwbacks, right? What does that sound like? That sounds like Genesis 1-1, right? That is a throwback to the first creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the first thing that he created? Light. And he created light into a darkness, into an earth that Genesis says, an earth that is void and dark. He creates light. And John goes on to say, uh, in the beginning was the Word, that's Christ, that's Jesus, and and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So he's, he's talking about this original creation. Jesus was there. Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John tells you, Jesus, this This word was there in the beginning. Everything was made through him. And now he's going to turn to a new creation narrative. There is a new creation taking place in verse 4. He says of Jesus coming into the world, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's showing you there is a recreation going on here. There is a new creation that just in Genesis, a literal light came into dark chaos. So in the second creation, new life comes into a dark, sinful 
world. And Jesus is that light. Paul picks this up, tracks along the same line, 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what's it say? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what is darkness? Darkness is the state of death of one in the world who is separated from God due to the rejection of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Simply put, it is a dead person in a dead world. They may be living, they might be breathing, but they're dead. And this was the state of us. Before the gospel came along, before we believed in Jesus, the Bible describes us as dead, as part of this world that is passing away, that is dying. When I was a kid, I used to play this game with my siblings. And it didn't have a name. It was just this game that we invented. And what we used to do is after the wheelie bins had been emptied, um, I've got three siblings, two brothers and a sister. When the wheelie bins had been emptied, and I emphasize that they were empty, we used to get in them. One of us. We'd close the lid. And we, uh, my, my older brothers, who were bigger and stronger, they would wheel us around the yard. And they would wheel us along the footpath and under the house. We had this tall house on stumps. So we'd go under the house and footpaths and around the lawn and all these different places. We were uh, in a manse, so we were connected to the church property. So it was quite a large sort of block. And uh, they would then stop at some stage. And the person who was in the wheelie bin had to try and guess where we were in the yard. Um, as you can see, we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, so while, you know, our friends are playing with uh, the Super Nintendo and things like that, we're just wheeling each other around in bins. And uh, obviously, you know, it was dark in there. This was before we had the yellow bins and the red bins and the green bins. And so you've closed that lid and it was pitch black. And uh, obviously it didn't smell very good, but as a kid, you don't care. Uh, and so we would get to these different places around the yard and then we'd try and guess. And most of the time, we have no idea where we were. And um, I tell you now, I love playing that game as a kid, but I don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> the Bible describes pre-faith in Christ as being in like a dumpster with the lid closed and it's locked and it's dark and you can't get out. And you're just hanging out in the rubbish with the smell and the germs. And it's all going to be burnt one day. And Jesus comes into the dark world with dead people. And he offers life. It gives a new understanding of John 3.16, doesn't it? Because you think, oh, the world, we just need to, you know, get away from the world or, or you know, get to this point where the world is no more. But John 3.16, for God so loved the world. There was actually a love 
for this creation for us that's motivated everything that we're reading and understanding today. So let's go back to our promise again. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Instead of death, you have the light of life. The light is Jesus. We know light is a metaphor and he's trying to explain something bigger, like just like darkness is trying to explain something greater than kind of we can put into words. It's, so, it, so is light. And what it really means is, according to John, is light is life. Life with God. He says that in, in uh, verse 4, the first chapter. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Light is, is life. Life with God. He just defines it for us there. In a dying world, true life is only found with God. And God has a life inside of him that is true life. And it's only found in him. And he gives it to, and in some ways this is hard to understand within the Trinitarian relationship, but John talks about him giving it to Jesus, who then brings it to earth for us. John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. The very life of God given to Jesus, who then comes to us and says, Do you want it? First John chapter 1, verse 2, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And we get this life when we receive Jesus, when we believe. The life of the Father is found in the Son and is offered to us, and it is eternal. It will not die. It is not on a timer. Simply put, light is eternal life by which man knows God. And this is the life of God, the very life of God provided through Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I hope that gives you some understanding, some context, some appreciation for the gospel, for that verse. I know it's one singular verse, but within that one verse, there is so much depth. So what does this mean for our lives? I have three quick implications that this means for us. Firstly, if you have not received Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you haven't followed Him in His light, if you haven't believed in Him, then today, man, it's a great day to do that. There is nothing more important for you than that. And so if you would like to do that, please come and talk to me after the service. I know many of us here have already trusted in Christ, and, but I want to make that available for anyone who may not have. <clears throat> the second point of implication is this, and that is the promise of Jesus. For those of us, and that's many of us in this room, right? 
who have trusted in Jesus for the salvation of our sins, you need to know you will never walk in darkness again. That life of hopelessness, of separation from God, of being dead in your sins, of living in darkness for eternity, that will never be your reality. You will never be separated from the love of God because it is impossible to be in darkness when you have light. And the light of Christ is in you. The two exist, cannot exist in the same space. But what can exist in this life, and I'm sure some of you are experiencing this now, is suffering and hardship and loneliness and pain. And they can feel pretty dark. It might be a desire for more than what you've currently got. might feel like you're never going to get over the loss of a child and the pain that comes with that. It might feel like anxiety of not knowing all these future things that are weighing on you. It may be a sin habit, an addiction that just feels like it, it is never going to go away. Something that's just stealing all your joy. Maybe you just feel so lonely and isolated. And there's just an emptiness and it feels pretty dark. I don't want to minimize that. Those things are true and they're hard. And as a church, we want to help you and do what we can to show you life with God. But those things are temporary. And I want you to know today that one day they will come to an end. And that it's not true darkness. The true darkness you will never experience if you are in Christ. And lastly, I want to talk about life with God. If Christ is the light of life and he gives you eternal life with God, what does that mean for us today? I think one of us things that it means and that we have to wrestle with is what is the good life? See, we all have a, a good life projection in our head. We all have desires for things of what it would mean to, to live the good life. And the problem with that or the danger of that is often we desire the good life and it doesn't actually include anything with God. Tara and I were both talking this week. Now, we both have a desire, a real desire right now for comfort. More than we do for God. We both just admitted to each other this week. We just said, we are desiring a fully furnished house with every room fully vent, uh, uh, renovated and a second car um, that's a little bit more luxurious than the one we have now and more money in the bank than we have right now. And we both said we, we want that more than we want relationship with God. 
And we had to repent of that. We, um, we got given this book, New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. It's just a devotional for every day. And uh, what spurred this conversation on was uh, what he said a couple of days ago, June 24. This is what Paul Tripp says about the good life. We tend to turn to God, turn God into a delivery system. We get excited about what he can do for us and what he can give us. We fall into thinking prayer as asking God to sign the bottom of our self-composed, self-orientated, individualized wish lists. We, you know, what would, uh, sorry, you know, what would we like God to give us that we can't get ourselves? We set our hearts on things that we think will make us happy. Perhaps it's the love of another person or our detailed picture of of marital bliss. Perhaps it's a certain level of affluence and all the things we could experience and enjoy as a result. Maybe it's ministry success, influence and acclaim. Maybe it's freedom from sickness or suffering. Perhaps it's a good week or a nerve-free job interview. Maybe it's a succulent steak, a good vacation, or children who turn out all right. Now, in a way, none of these things is inherently evil, but there's something wrong about the whole system. So many of our ideas of what the good life is don't actually have God in them. We envision the good quite apart from the grace of his presence, promises, and provisions. It is the subtle belief that life somehow, some way can be found outside of him. That the world is capable of being our saviour. And because we fall into believing that life can be found outside of him, God isn't central to our dreams. He's not in our dreams. The only way he actually touches many of our dreams is that we see him as the delivery mechanism of the good life that we dream and ask him to produce it. He is not life to us. He's the deliverer of life. He is not the end that we hunger for, but he's the means to the end we crave. I was deeply convicted by that. God is unwilling to be your means to what you call the good life. Your relationship with him must be your definition of the good life. The good life is life with God. Made possible through Christ, the light of the world. Do you believe that? <clears throat> I have to ask myself that question. Do I believe that? Do I really believe that? And here's where we finish. You should talk to God about that. You should tell him how you're going with that. And be as honest as you can be. 
I have been talking to God about that. Just telling him, sometimes I want other things more than I want you. And sometimes I think those things will bring me joy and life. Help me to know that that's not true. That life, true life, is only found in relationship with him. That is the good life. Before Christ, we were in darkness. Now in Christ, we are in the light of eternal life with God. And the good life is life with God. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to talk to God, to be as honest as you can with Him about where you are at with your salvation, with the good life. Is it with Him? Are your dreams about Him? Or is it about the things we can get? Are you believing the lie that if you could just get this, you'd be happy, you'd be satisfied, you'd be full of joy? It's not true. There is life with God that far surpasses anything that that the world can offer. In fact, it's so much better. It's like light versus darkness. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you that you have given us life, a life that sometimes we can't even truly comprehend. But there are times in my life where I want other things that I think are better than you, that I think will bring life. And they're not even close. And so, God, I pray you would help me to really believe that Jesus is the light of the world. I thank you for the promise that in Christ we will never walk in darkness. We will never be separated from you. And we can never be separated from your love. God, I pray for each one of us here that you would help us to be honest about where we are at with the things that we desire and to rightly prioritize them underneath our relationship with you. Convince us in our hearts that the good life is life with you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, and by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Amen.